Black Alert. Spoilers for all Star Treks everywhere. Welcome to Jumpsuit Utopia. Today we have a very exciting episode looking at the last episodes of Season 3 of the Star Trek Discovery, the ostensibly three-part series finale. My name is Sophia, and I will be the new captain of this journey. Oh my god, the first trans captain. The first trans captain. To our knowledge. Well, first trans captain who's the captain as, and the protagonist of the show. Yes. With me, as always, is my lovely number one, Esri. Oh, hi. How are you doing? Oh, mmm. I have this tasty, tasty apple. Oh, this tastes bad. Does it, does it taste like shit? Is it perhaps a shit apple? Shit apples, Randy. <laughs> shit apples don't fall far from this shit tree. Welcome to Trailer Park Boys Revolution. Or Trailer Park Boys Utopia. Trailer Park Trans. Trans Trailer Park Utopia. I'm not the one trans character they added in season eight. Anyway. Yikes. <laughs> moving on. We also have... I am Tribunus Plebus Tiberius Victoria Publia Gracchus. At your service. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we have Commandante Alpha. Hello, everybody. I am back. Yeah. Wow, that was <laughs> that was perhaps the meekest I've ever seen Commandante Alpha. That was an explosive season three finale introduction. I feel that like was, that was my Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. Hello, <laughs> I am back. Okay. Wow. wow. Apparently, we got Prime Universe. Commandante Alpha instead of our typical mirror universe. Yeah. Instead yeah. of Smiley. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We usually get Smiley. This time we got just regular Chief O'Brien, I guess. <laughs> and then last but not least, our, our comrade from not the mirror universe, but the slightly better universe, <laughs> even though it's actually just as bad underneath the surface, Kyle Thompson. Hey, I'm here. I I'm here. Uh we're we're uh yeah, I'd say that's about right. It's slight slightly, very slightly better. It's like the the difference between Pepsi and Coke, like depending on which you prefer. Like uh, the JJ Trek timeline versus Prime Universe timeline. <laughs> yeah, we definitely don't live in the mirror universe, everybody. Don't worry about it. It's gonna turn out fine. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to be talking about today, Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episodes 11, 12, and 13, which are Sukal, There is a Tide, and remember how we said that there was nothing in the whole season called um, That Hope is You Part 2? Well, funny story, uh, the last episode is called That Hope is You Part 2. So, you know, a double dumbass on me uh, for looking at the titles in advance. They did change a bunch of the names during the production season. For instance, Sukal was originally supposed to be called the Citadel. Uh, when they announced this earlier, they called That Hope Is You Part 2 Outside. So ostensibly, these are three different episodes. But when we were going to review just the first two, we realized, oh shit, this is a definitely a three-parter. In fact, we kind of get one episode of A plot, one episode of B plot, and then one episode that resolves both of those plots. So, Although it, arguably it's an A plot and A plot. Sure, it's a double A plot. The point is we couldn't do a great episode on just the first, you know, two thirds of this movie. So we decided to do an extravaganza. Yep. And not so, only are they both A plots, they are both the same plot. Oh. Okay, oh. We, we got oh. some, we got some, uh, Critical theory deconstruction going on here with Star Trek Discovery. I love it. Love it. We would never do that. Never. Never ever. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So I'm not going to go through and like, like go through like the whole plot of all things. I'm just going to kind of go by topic. Okay. So we start off with Sukal, where we more or less figure out what the cause of the burn is. After the big adventure in Fashiland, they finally get to the nebula, which they discovered episodes ago, was pretty much where the burn began. The Verubin Nebula. Yeah. So we get to the nebula, and basically 
they find out that there is still a life sign in the nebula, even though the distress the signal they found was 125 years old, and the nebula is highly irradiated. They can't quite get Discovery to maneuver through the nebula, so they send out Book's ship. Yeah, they, they send out Book's ship. To find a place where they could safely jump to. They do, they do some reconnaissance. Right. They find this holodeck environment. You have Michael and Culber and Saru beam into this holodeck environment. And it's all fucked up. You know, the shit glitching up. You know, someone's doing a T-pose and their pants disappear. Straight like, Donald ducking it. You know, it's all... Yeah, just, uh, you know... You think they would have solved these glitches, you know, in 125 years. But if anything, they got worse. Because I guess uh, the devs pulled support or something. But, um, yeah, so you have this glitch-ass... Right, well, that's a good point. Yeah, so they have this glitch-ass holodeck environment. All of them look different. They're all different Star Trek races, because that's it was was pretty cute and fun. It gives Doug Jones, who plays Saru, a chance to just, you know, not spend hours in that makeup chair. So that's nice. Yeah, Doug Jones, a.k.a. Saru, is a human. Right. Michael Burnham is a trill. Yeah. And Culver is a Bajoran. Yeah, which furthers my, you know, discovery is the most DS9 of the new show's conspiracy theory. Because Trill and Bajoran, you know? Yeah, Trill and Bajoran, and also since this is now in the future, all the knowledge of DS9 events is available to them. Oh, yes, that's right. So they know about Trill symbionts, and they... Um, no Bajorans and Cardassians and so on and so on. Stuff that wasn't the case in TOS. So I guess, like, let's talk about, like, the origin of the burn, basically. Yeah, so they get into this thing and they quickly figure out that, yeah, it's a hollow program and that's why they all look different. They don't have their radiation drugs. So there's a ticking clock on getting out of this situation. They look around and they finally find the life sign. And it is not Dr. Isa, who we saw a hologram sent to through the distress signal. We see a male Kelpian. And he's kind of like muttering to himself and like making this like weird trying thing outside of this door. Saru says, hey, we're from the outside. We're here to help you. We received the distress signal. And he gets really scared and runs away. And as he does that, this big fucking door that's like all locked up bursts open and they hear some kind of creepy growly thing in there. And Berman's like, I'm going to stay here and keep whatever's in there from getting out. Y'all go chase the, the Kelpian guy. Yeah. Can, can I skip to the conceptual heart of this? Sure. Okay. We were wondering what the burn was. We thought maybe it's a Section 31 conspiracy. Maybe it's some like dumb the Romulans did it, right? But the writers kind of did something fun. If they were like good socialist realist writers, of course, they would have had more intentionality to it. But because, you know, we got a writer's room full of like liberals, they do sort of appreciate tragedy. And so you have this mutant man child who exploded the whole Federation, who basically broke communism in a cry of maternal grief. That's what causes the burn in this weird ass holodeck. It's the most like weird existential shit that Discovery has done. Mm -hmm. And they made it the reason that the Federation falls apart in the future. And it's just so fucking weird and I didn't expect it. And I kind of love that some mutant child's maternal like grief breaks everything. And it's not some kind of conspiracy. Even though I was hoping, well, maybe they'll do an autonomous critique of the Federation. and this thing There is a little bit of that there with, like, the Navarre-Vulcan, like, tension and, like, the Federation expanding too fast. Sure. But that isn't the ultimate cause. That's not why the burn happens. The burn happens because a mutant child screams. Yeah. Well, the burn happens because the Federation is doing dangerous exploration after they've hit peak dilithium. So what? Uh, they're always doing dangerous exploration. That's what Starfleet does. Yeah, like, mean, think about all the shit that happens to the Enterprise in TNG. That's some dangerous exploration. I think the most that that Discovery is sort of like getting into trying to grapple with some of the, the utopian themes is the liberal like ego movement kind of stuff. They're making parallels to like peak oil and Mm -hmm. developing like new sustainable plant-based or whatever life form based energy consumption, that kind of stuff. I think that's kind of like because the writer's room is still with her. So I guess like that's that's what we're gonna get out of (laughs) out of discovery. I mean you're you're partially right, but I think we, we that's not the ultimate big plot 
point isn't about the politics, but the politics is there. You get this the most back in Unification 3 in the exchange between the Navarre president and Captain Saru, where she talks about how the Federation put the needs of the many ahead of the needs of the few. And so the Federation tried to help so many people and expanded so quickly that they couldn't properly support the infrastructure to keep everybody happy and together and and diplomatic. They were just always focusing on like fixing new problems. And honestly, like Lower Decks kind of has that germ within it too. You know, Mariner talks about how Starfleet is great at helping people and then just leaving and nobody ever comes and checks up on these planets. Some of the bits are about checking up on planets Kirk helped back in TOS. And then they're right back into the same shit because nobody's followed up with them for like a couple hundred years, right? I guess to like respond to Tiberius with regards to the eco, like looking for new technologies for energy and stuff. The writer's room basically concludes that the Federation was never really able to replace dilithium. Every single alternative to dilithium that they try is some monkey's paw bullshit. Right. And then dilithium explodes and destroys them. So there is a kind of climate change apocalyptic thing going on there. And the solution is to just find more dilithium. That very uh, at, yeah. at the at the end of at the end of the series. Yeah. Well, okay, dilithium. <laughs> oh god, we have to have to blow up parts of that planet to get all the dilithium out. Okay, so like, I see what you're all are saying, but let's also point out something obvious about dilithium that's different from oil. Dilithium, except for in that one TNG episode in that one part of the Alpha Quadrant, doesn't create pollution that is going to overheat the galaxy because that's not a thing right so that isn't important like the issue with dilithium isn't that it's it's creating like a toxic pollution that's heating up the galaxy the issue is that they just ran out and as far as i understand it there doesn't seem to be any huge drawback there is an established mechanism where warp travel if you do it too much, can harm the environment or something. It, it can it, harm some subspace, but like... It's, it's not really like all that well fleshed out. It's not fleshed out and it's not consistent. Yeah, so we find out that basically they have to convince Sukal, this this Kelpian person, to try to leave the simulation. And as far as he knows, the simulation is a real world. He is peak uh, Baudrillard. Yeah, he is one with the simulation. He doesn't want to think about outside because... um. If there is an outside, yeah, yeah, outside must be dead because if outside isn't dead and that they were supposed to come for me and that just means that they just left me here. Mm -hmm. So therefore I reason that the outside must be dead. The pathos between Sukal and Saru in these episodes was was so good. Sukal had trouble trusting Saru because Saru looks like a human. And at first Sukal thinks they're all part of the program. Yeah, I love that. And because... An emotional outburst by Sukal could cause another burn. They have to be very careful about how they approach Sukal. Yeah. But if they don't hurry and get Sukal to like help them get out of the simulation and call Discovery, they're going to die of radiation poisoning. Yeah. I, I don't know how else to get around this. Sukal is a mutant boomer. You can't upset the boomers. You they'll also destroy civilization. Yeah. yeah, they'll destroy all civilization. They'll call your manager. They'll complain. And then they'll scream so loud that all, yeah. all resources shatters. blow up. The earth shatters. They'll blow up the internet. They'll scream so loud. <laughs> yeah. And also they prefer to hide in a simulation, do something, and are kind of too like ill-developed to realize that they did something and it's their fault. They're <laughs> like, how come things never worked? How come I'm like abandoned in this like br- broken down simulation here? Like what happened? <laughs> I mean, Sukal as a character is much more sympathetic yeah. than the picture I'm painting here. But, you know, Star Trek is a, a show that's humanist and about empathy. So that kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, it was hard for me to ignore that the whole thing is like, come on, buddy. Come on, it's okay. And so the big difference between Sukal and the boomers as they are is that once Sukal realized what he did by accident, he wants to help. He and, wants to help and, fix it. And, yeah. he, and he wants to be adventurous and learn more about the world Mm -hmm. and kind of is actually open to receiving guidance that he didn't get growing up. If only more people in that situation were like that. Yeah. Yeah. The first thing Sukal says when he realizes that he's the cause of why the outside never came inside is 
I have to make this right. And like yeah. the line delivery is great. The directing is great, but it felt like it leans into that issue in really all of Star Wars where like if you explain the problem to someone in the right way, they'll change their behavior and want to make the problem right. And it's like, I get where that's coming from, but mm, that kind of bothers me sometimes. Tiberius, you misgendered Star Trek. Uh, you called it Star Wars. I did? Yeah, you yeah. did. Oh, <laughs> you have to make it right. You have to make it right. Oh, boy, I, feel- I, watched, I watched The Last Jedi last night, so. <laughs> I don't feel yeah. so bad now as you're getting your name wrong all the time. <laughs> The other thing to say about this plot is Adira isn't with the initial away team. Burnham, Burnham leaves and goes back with Book once when Osira uh, shows up. And then Adira sneaks over against orders and brings radiation medicine. They heard over the comms that there's a hollow program that made, made it difficult. They, they basically couldn't have access to their radiation medication. It was hidden by the hologram. So... Adira beams over with the medicine in their mouth and they appear as a Zahian. But more importantly, Gray is yeah. visible to the rest of the away team. Yeah, trans visibility. Yeah, trans visibility. Trans day of visibility. Yeah, only in the simulation. The simulation makes trans people visible. Right. So that's, that's, I think, what we need to learn from here. So there's two, two, two take-homes. Reality. The simulation is reality. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Well... It's important that the simulacrum can birth a new kind of freedom. Just saying, I think. I think it's important. <laughs> um, but it was it was kind of fun to watch them be like little baby autonomist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, yeah. they they pulled the they pulled the play out of the Burnham Burnham rule book. It's true. Oh yeah, Adira's Adira's away mission. Yeah, Adira oh, Adira, Adira pulled the Burnham. Yeah. So uh, Adira read Tronti. <laughs> So yeah, Gray's the Vulcan, and uh, so, so there's a couple take-home messages about trans people we need to take take from Star Trek, when, and queer people in general. One, kill them. Or or have them die tragically. Or have them die tragically. Yeah. Two, Two, they're only visible in simulations. Yeah. Otherwise, you could just completely ignore them. Those are the two morals. Thank you for being progressive, Star Trek, and bringing out <laughs> the, these necessary changes in representation. I'm just going to say this. Until the whole world was engulfed in the simulation, people had a super huge problem with trans people. But, I mean, you know, I don't know. If we're going to blot out the sun with carbon emissions or something, yeah, fuck it, you know? We're all going to die anyway. Let, let the transes yeah, be the trans, trans. I think I think there's something to that. Anyway. <laughs> I'm just going to eat my apple of knowledge. You're going to eat your apple of shit. Yeah. But on that, Colbert does say that he's going to find a way to it probably like use Discovery's hollow system to to allow Gray to be visible, at least while on the ship, because yeah. because they kind of established that Gray is like an actual entity. Gray is yeah. not a figment of Adira's imagination. And therefore, mm-hmm. like, is visible to whatever computer system. And so can essentially, like, take Gray and make him not exactly corporeal, but at least visible to other people. And, and there is technology that does this, right? Like, uh, in Star Trek Voyager, they travel to, you know, around this time period. And Bizarro Steve Jobs or whatever is, like, mining the future for oh, tech. Yeah. In, in that Voyager episode, which we totally have to cover, I fucking love that. And one of the pieces of technology that they bring back is the mobile emitter, which allows the doctor to leave sickbay. Mm-hmm. So please state the nature of the transvisibility emergency. This tech could be used mm-hmm. to give Gray the independent existence he deserves. Well, on top of that, too, like this, the ship that Sukal was on is 125 years old. Oh, yeah. And they're using programmable matter for this hollow program. They have easily have the technology available. Plus, once the Federation opens up and is more broadly integrated and Book is there so he knows about the advances that the Emerald Chain made that the Federation didn't, mm-hmm. it shouldn't be too difficult to make this happen. You just make gray out of programmable matter and you use some kind of mobile emitter. It's 29th century technology. There are a few centuries past that, you know? Mm-hmm. I think there's a there's a distinct lack of hollow 
hollow deck episodes. That's like one of the core components of all like the most recent Star Trek. There doesn't mean one hollow deck. Have they even mentioned the hollow deck in any of the uh, new seasons? Have they ever been in one? It's mostly because they're from an era where it doesn't exist. Yeah, TOS didn't have holodecks. That's that starts in the TNG era. It, oh. And the Enterprise D, it's oh, brand new technology in the in the first season. Yeah. yeah, I will. I will point out that the holodeck does show up in Star Trek Picard. Uh, Picard yeah. has his like his fake house that oh, he, yeah. he's, he's oh, hanging yeah. out in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I miss the holodeck. You got really shitty episodes in the holodeck. They're brilliant. I, I fucking love holodeck episodes, which is why I loved this like really bizarre glitch ass holodeck, it, like cyberpunk. This is know, the holodeck like, episode. Yeah. Can we can we just talk about how weird Doug Jones looks like in real life? <laughs> yeah, like, that's why he always plays like aliens and monsters and stuff. He has kind of a, a strange face, but he's an amazing actor. Oh, oh so he's a really good actor. But like he, do, he in certain parts, like I always thought that they were using CGI to make him that tall and that kind of skinny. I have a friend who has a very similar build to Doug Jones, not in the height, but in the, the, the thinness, and it's a metabolism thing. Okay, so let's move on to the Osira issue. Oh, damn. While all this shit is happening over the, a couple of episodes with Sukal and the, the Wade team, Ensign Tilly, who's the temporary first officer, is in command of Discovery. And while uh, they're gone, they see that there's a Federation ship heading towards them, but they won't answer hails. And Ensign Tilly is smart enough to figure out that's not a Federation ship. And then they quickly figure out after that, like, well, we're near a dilithium planet and we have a spore drive. Who would come all the way out here for those two things? The Emerald Chain, specifically Osira. And it is, of course, the Viridian, Osira's ship. So she shows up and they immediately cloak. And I love the bit of business between Osira and Tilly. Tilly throws a little bit of Freud shade at Osira. I feel like Tilly dipping into that inner Killy in there. Yeah. It was so great. I loved it. I'm sure Tom hated it. It was it was a lot of fun, but yeah. So while they're uh, they're both cloaked, Severian and and Disco are cloaked, and Osiris make, basically making demands. She wants to use the crew as leverage, and she wants Disco. Of course, Tilly refuses. And then back on the Sukal planet, while all of this is happening, Sukal has like a mini burn when he's faced by this kelp monster that represents his fear, a monster from like a kelpian folklore and this mini burn causes uh the cloak to go down on both the viridian and disco and i don't know how osira does this but they transport through disco's shields because disco's shields are at 54 percent they first transport to the engineering room where stamens is is trying to get ready for a jump and book book has already left to go go get the away team stamens gets caught and is held hostage, and then the rest of the ship is taken over with the bridge crew being taken last. So, for me, like, the shield thing would have been answerable with, like, a line of dialogue. The the shield thing is a a bizarre uh, writing glitch. The same simulation glitch was affecting the writer's room. (laughs) I I was kind of wishing when Osira storms a ship and takes it from Tilly. Tilly tries one last Freud bit, being like, actually, Osira, have you considered that you might be a green butthole? (laughs) Like, what do you have to lose at that point? Nothing, nothing of the of the sort. Yeah, I don't know the so the transport tech in Discovery season three is like newer and different, Mm. and it seems like it bypasses shields and needs a specific jammer. Hmm. I like it. I'll take it. Yeah, that that was (laughs) my head. Kind of was something along those lines. Like my head kind of was that the Emerald Chain has had more access to technology and science institutes than the Federation has since the burn. And so my headcanon is that Emerald Chain technology is more advanced than Federation technology. So they have transporters that are able to go through shields. And the only reason why they weren't able to do it before was because Disco was cloaked. Obviously, there's no Romulan treaty where they can't have cloaking tech. So Disco gets taken by Osira. And that's like a scary thing. And that's where like the first part of this three-part season finale ends. It ends with uh, Book and Burnham flying out on Book's ship seeing uh, Disco and the Viridian jump. And so we open to the next episode Mm -hmm. with Disco outside of Federation HQ with the Viridian. 
Uh, and Iridium is firing on Disco, but it's a big show because Osiris is actually on Disco. We see the commander-in-chief of Starfleet, Admiral Vance, concerned about this, and they think that somehow the Viridian has compromised the Masil field of Disco and is able to jump with them. Yeah, they they too did mushrooms and went to go see a major science fiction franchise. (laughs) Eventually, CNC lets the man realize it's too late that Osiris is actually on Disco, and Osiris calls them and says, hey, I just want to talk. As a sign of good faith, I'm keeping only the bridge crew as leverage, and I'm sending the rest of the crew in shuttlecrafts. You'll see that they are all unharmed. She makes good on that promise, and then after that, she comes in and she wants to talk. Let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. I didn't see this coming, and this was my absolute... Neither did Admiral Vance, to be fair. (laughs) Yeah. No, he definitely didn't see it coming. This is a huge twist. Up until now, Osira is like green comic book villain, right? This is the only episode where she gets any more complex. Yeah. And I feel like that's a tragedy because I think we I feel like we were kind of robbed of a better villain because up until this point she is kind of a comic book villain. The only other time they kind yeah. of like her Nietzsche posting. Her Nietzsche posting is the only <laughs> other time where you kind of get like a hint that she's more complex when she talks to Saru about like, you know, we have been enslaved our whole life. No now I'm going to do whatever it takes to not get enslaved. Or I'm going to I'm going to embrace master morality. Yeah. Basically. Which isn't really Nietzsche, but you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> she basically wants to cut a deal with the Federation. By this point, Vance knows that the Emerald Chain is running out of dilithium. And she makes the case that eventually all empires fall. And I want to merge with the Federation. And that's when we get the line about shit apples. I actually like this twist. I think it works really well to sell Osira as like the cunning, manipulative capitalist. That's exactly the kind of thing that capitalist nations and corporations do all the goddamn time, which is embrace, extend, extinguish. Like, because basically what, what she's doing with this merger is to capitalize on the goodwill of the Federation being this utopian project that's lasted almost a thousand years. Validate capitalism as something that is and could be moral as long as you regulate it properly. And then essentially, like, take over the the Federation from the inside, which has been the bane of the chain's existence basically since since it came into being. Because mm-hmm. like her, her entire goal is to merge the chain and the Federation and install a figurehead that is essentially like her puppet. Right, right. She basically she basically wants to wants to medviate out somebody while staying Putin in the background. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. She, and she wants to dang Jiaping the economy. Yeah, no, she totally yeah. wants to wants to dang it up. And uh, it's um, also like the, the British Empire move of like, well, we're uh, we're not gonna do slavery anymore. Because that's always the that's always the uh, the go to thing about the uh, Orion Syndicate, right? Which is mm-hmm. like the sort of predecessor organization to the Emerald Chain. It's like, well, they're slavers, right? right. We don't have, yeah. we don't want to deal with them. It's like it's not really a thought terminating cliche, but it, it kind of settles the matter where it's like, well, right. they're slavers, fuck them. Yeah, this um, isn't Star Wars. We don't accept slavery. But what if we weren't slavers? What if yeah. we were just good-hearted capitalists kyle some would say that it it was it was like her her trump card (laughs) i don't know if we're going by american presidents it's more like her jefferson card where she owns like tons of slaves and is like well i'm trying to get it abolished but i don't know it's really hard to abolish again it it really is the british empire move of like yeah, we're going to get rid of the slaves, but just don't look at any of our indentured servants or coolies who are definitely not slaves. Yeah. yeah. You know? Well, and then there's also that generation-long drawdown from the domination of pre-warp civilizations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She, I mean, she's kind of right that if they just leave it as a power vacuum, it would probably be chaos, but also, like, she's totally manipulative, and y'all are totally right. Like, she basically wants, woke capitalism... The thing she wants from the Federation is the Federation's reputation and goodwill. But the thing she demands of the Federation is that they accept the Orion way of life as equal, valid, and ethical. And that way of life is called capitalism. It's called capitalism. She wants the Federation to accept capitalism by name. She wants... So basically there's this old, there's this old uh, deep space station 
that the Federation has lost contact with. What is it? Deep Space uh, 253 or Do, something? It's yeah, 670309. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, the, that's the Star Wars series that's going to be out in 3126. <laughs> Star, Wars, Star Trek. God damn it. Yeah. Wow, you did it too. You did it too. Standard Star Trek. Wow. Back to my goddamn brain. Oh, you're welcome, Tom. The world. Anyway. <laughs> so yeah there's no uh, space station 285 i believe oh is it okay yeah um they've been training with a orion mercantile for a long time 100 years right yeah like, yeah yeah because they have no other way to get supplies and emma brent's like look that's not by choice we haven't been able to get that far yeah we got a bunch of shit apples yeah we have shit apples and she says i want you to sanction that relationship and he's like I'm not going to do that because your mercantiles are all built off of slave labor. She's like, we're going to outlaw slavery. And then he's like, okay, well, our, and every, there's a lie detector there, lie detector AI. And everything she's saying so far is being corroborated by the AI. That's true. And so as far as I remember, the, it's the only time. Yeah. So th- this is from, this is from the chat. I didn't want to interrupt, but yeah, as far as I can remember, this is the only time that they explicitly refer to the Federation as something other than capitalism. There is some, uh, as I, there are gestures towards this in Deep Space Nine, particularly with Quark being like, ah, you know, these cucks, why don't they just like, why, why can't they accept that profit is good? I don't mm-hmm. think it is ever said explicitly. I don't know if the word capitalism is ever said. Like, I, I was shocked yeah. when they said it. I couldn't believe it. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Yeah, it, it, it explicitly acknowledges that the Federation is not capitalism and, the, and that the quality of your non-capitalist society is about post-scarcity. That's the whole bit about shit apples is that the food that they have is all recycled re- matter recombinated shit. That's the only way that they can keep feeding people with their replicators and, and have enough energy. Shit apple socialism. We got into kind of a funny debate yesterday about whether or not they were doing this the entire time throughout Star Trek. <laughs> Like when Seven of Nine eats that cheesecake and that Voyager episode, Body and Soul, is that cheesecake, you know, recombinated shit? What replicators do is they take energy and they make it into matter. And then you can recycle matter into the replicator where they break down the atoms, convert it to energy, and store it as fuel, basically. If if the starting point is if you could take energy and make it into matter, then dilithium warp cores would be enough would provide enough energy in most cases to where you wouldn't need to recycle shit. Maybe Voyager did that because they were in a more scarce situation, but for core Federation planets in the 90s track, that I don't think that was the case. That is most certainly the case explicitly in the 32nd century when there is a shortage of dilithium and, and there aren't really post-scarcity. They have to use everything they can to still keep it socialist, basically. When, you know, Osiris kind of, you know, dare I say, talking shit about the Federation not having real apples and using shit apples. And Levin says, well, we don't have to commit atrocities for these apples, right? And then he brings up how the Emerald Chain is, um, I think Tiberius mentioned this earlier, is elevating pre-warp civilizations, giving them warp technology, but also keeping the boot on them and ex- using them for their resources, which we saw with Quajon earlier in the season, or Quajon rather. He reads it and everything seems to be in order. And they're all the things that Emerald Vance wants to object to, she's already taken care of. And she's basically trying to do woke capitalism. And at this point in the Federation, Admiral Vance seemed down with it. Right? Like, he was really kind of on board, but he's like, the last thing we have to do is make sure the representative of the Emerald Chain in the Federation is completely independent from you. It can't be you, because you have a bad reputation, and they have to be independent from you. And this person has to try you for crimes. And that's when Asira draws the line. Yeah. Gotta say, you know, if you're apples, doesn't matter if they're shit apples. If you don't have to commit atrocities for them, they taste pretty good. I think Admiral Vance is cunning enough, and the way that he acted out the scene was he was kind of going a little bit over the top and be like, oh my god, this is so great. I would love to be here with you. You know, all we need to do is to make sure that you're not on top of it. And like, essentially by him pressing that point, he's intentionally torpedoing the Federation and the chain merging. I think he was basically looking for any reason 
to diplomatically like end this because Osira was inside the Starfleet headquarters with one of their ships with like Osira's fleet ship sitting right outside. So he's in a dangerous and vulnerable position and he's looking for a diplomatic solution that would get her out of there and not end up with like this massive firefight that could like potentially destroy their headquarters. So it's a pure poison pill, basically. He's putting forward something that he knows that she won't accept. I I think that's true, but I also kind of buy that the Emerald Chain, like in these conditions of scarcity, if we're going by pure orthodox historical materialism, you know, like you need a certain level of productive forces in order to have like a good communism, because otherwise you just have, you know, barracks communism. You have this like communism of, of scarcity. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I mean, Admiral Vance is, is an idealist. He's uh, into these abstractions. Osiris says abstractions outright, like, and is basically going, you are an idealist, you know, like, whatever. And he's like, fine, I'm a fucking idealist. I'll eat the shit apples if it means justice, you know? Like, I don't care. Sort of orthodox Marxist kind of theory is that, like, if you don't have post-scarcity productive forces, you, you can't have, like, great communism. You're going to have shitty communism. And the Federation at this point is Barrett's communism. Let's be real. Yeah, it totally is. It doesn't, like, it doesn't have the same capacity for exploration and for research that a capitalist entity has. So I, I think I think I actually agree with the point that, that, that trying Osira was meant as a poison pill in order to end this gambit of hers, but also to get her at the table so that way it just doesn't immediately break out to a firefight. But I also think that the Federation at this point was so desperate and broken that if she was willing to stand trial that the federation would have actually considered it yeah i mean what osira is proposing is obviously totally illiberal because um she's basically like well i i I can imagine a scientist that i might consider and vance is like someone that independent of you like not just a puppet and elsewhere in the show we meet invigorator aurelio who's an actor who used to play a a klingon and then got a lou garrick's disease als who does a really incredible his character is pretty amazing like as one of these you know disadvantaged people that has been uplifted by osira's beneficent charitable great civilization um (laughs) but he really believes in it because it gave him a chance he makes the case that in this future right back in the 23rd or 24th century him having a disability, being born with a disability, that character would not have been a problem because technology was free and travel was really easy. Mm-hmm. But in this future with scarcity, he would have died. They would have killed him because what are they going to do? Who's going to take care of him? But Asira saw potential in him and gave him a chance. And now he's married and he has kids. He has a life that he wouldn't have been able to have otherwise. And... So he really believes that Asira is a good person. And Samus has a good retort to this. He says, Asira might be more than she appears to be. I think you might be right about that. But she is also exactly what she appears to be. So to bring us back to the conversation that they're having, her plan is totally to appoint a puppet. Right. Right? Yeah. Like, that has zero independence from her. That's the one time the AI calls her out on a lie, basically. She intended to have the Federation representative be a puppet of hers. Yeah, Yeah. Cecil Rhodes wants to put the Rhodes Scholar in a position of power because he's a naive scientist who's very easy to manipulate. Yeah, it's true. But uh, no deal. The Federation goes back to eating shit apples. (laughs) Osira goes back to being a comic book villain. Yep. So this creates like a whole battle between the Federation, between uh, all the ships in Starfleet and Disco with the Viridian outside of the Federation HQ shooting at the shield. Do, did we cover the, the point about uh, putting Osira on trial? I did bring that up, but if you want to talk about more. Let, let, no, we should elaborate on that because that's the, mm-hmm. it's an illiberal capitalism versus, I mean, the difference between barracks communism and this is that there's fucking riots in the Federation. Yeah, they have is. something like liberal governance in the Federation. So even like, though the Federation is 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 yeah, socialist, is it, it it has like liberal yeah. basic rights basically. Yeah. So we have liberal governance and shit apple socialism versus like illiberal like bong rip neo reaction capitalism. Yeah, basically. And I mean, I think this was an important turn because. You know, the point where Vance 
essentially is like no deal or where where he provokes Osiris into no into saying no deal is yeah exactly like she needs to go on trial because everyone who's fighting for the federation who's working in starfleet they're not doing it because it's a life of luxury they're doing it because they're committed to the the great socialist ideals of the, of the federation and if she were to get a pass during this merger, it would be a betrayal of all the sacrifices of the members of the Federation who have tried to keep this thing going for somewhat idealistic reasons, right? And, you know, I, I, I think that's that's a really a vital point where it's like, as as uh, Stay Forty Two is saying in uh, chat, essentially this is like a dig at the like Obama logic for pardoning Bush and his uh, cronies about the Iraq War. Is like no, no, we can't actually let this slide for pragmatic reasons of real politic. We have to stick to our ideals to some degree because the moral rot that pardoning those crimes like because you know osiris hasn't just done slavery she's done genocide on multiple planets by pardoning all those crimes in order to save the material base of the federation we are going to destroy the federation right because the 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 heart of the federation will be dead it's more than just a liberal or like idealist abstractions of justice or whatever when you're trying to hold someone accountable for slavery and genocide, slavery and genocide has real-world material consequences on right. people, right? Yes. And the thing that Marx is critical about justice and rights and all this stuff is the hypocrisy of these concepts under bourgeois rule. Not that these concepts are necessarily bad. And but, there's more than that. Whatever. I'm not going to get into debate about that's, Marx. That's a smart way to read Marx. It's maybe smarter than Marx himself. Like, <laughs> well, Marx is a fucking edgelord. Like, yeah. I, I think if you want to have a, a socialist communist society, you cannot simply let people get away with genocide and slavery. The idea basically is that justice in the abstract, we will critique the abstractions and so on. We are materialists. We do not believe in equality and justice, but we really believe in freedom. Um, that, you know, equality and justice are these ideological terms that mm-hmm. will always, like, put a rubber stamp and sanctify a class society and its state. And I think most Marxists would look at liberty and go, yeah, yeah right. And right, that's, this, they've given that up to the right, basically. Yeah, and have the same sort of, I'm going to use the term anti-humanist response, in that these kind of things can't be articulated in a sincere way. These are always weasel words for class society. Mm-hmm. I think <laughs> the episode where Esri agrees with Jacques Derrida over Karl Marx. Ultimately, like I think Derrida says something borderline incomprehensible that justice is an undeconstructible concept. If that means anything at all, it basically means that justice is too important. And I would extend this to equality and, and liberty, freedom, whatever. That these humanist values are too important to be simply deflationary about mm-hmm. and to do these games about that um, even if you acknowledge that the predominant use of humanist values is to betray <laughs> the intention uh, behind humanist values or to be more nihilistic about it, that humanist values are precisely to enforce inhumanity. That isn't just an imminent critique where you have no stakes. That's a critique that is implicitly positing another standard of quality, justice, liberty. So yeah, that's where I'd go with that. And it also points to whoever wrote this section of the episode, uh, There is a Tide, who must be different than who's writing other parts of the show because the Admiral says he or she instead of they, and I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> but they're the most sophisticated political writer in the writer's room. Whoever wrote that part, because they finally made it canon. The Federation is definitely not capitalist by name. And they also made it canon that the Federation is better at liberalism than our contemporary liberal capitalism. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, it is liberal capitalism, whatever. But they're better at upholding, you know, the abstractions. They're better idealists. Well, right. I, I think even if you don't make this about bourgeois right, I think regardless of what kind of society you have, morale 
is a real thing. Like your society is going to have values that are at the core of what it sees itself as and what it's willing to struggle for and defend. I think Vance's point is well taken here, regardless whether uh, this is about bourgeois right or not. It's still a good point. And Vance seems to me to be like the first admiral character in Starfleet history who is like kind of multidimensional and intelligent and and competent. Like, I don't know. I mean, we get the Admiralty in Picard, who's like, fuck off, Picard. But they're <laughs> wrong at the same time. And Picard yeah. himself, like, as a, like, post-admiral, there's a lot of sort of, like, deconstruction of his character and looking at the flaws with his character. This seems like the first time where we have an Admiral character who's, like, pretty solid. Yeah, he makes some bad calls, but his bad calls have reasoning behind them. They're not just, yeah. like arrogant, high-handed bullshit, which is usually what you get out of a Star Trek admiral. Yeah. Yeah, he's not a brain slug, which is <laughs> my, my, my uh, headcanon for all the admirals is that when you become an admiral, you get inducted into that conspiracy from TNG season one with the brain slugs, right? Like, you know, it's a silly headcanon. I don't really actually believe it. But like... There's, it's a know, metaphor for something. Yeah, it's a metaphor for the kind of rot of, you know, uh, achieving, you know, a high rank in a, in a bureaucratic state. And kind of, you know, losing touch. Like Admiral Vance, he is on the front lines because the whole society, the whole way of life, the non-capitalist way of life has this fucking back against the wall. Right. It's very much the opposite tack that like Lower Decks takes, right? Yes. Uh, Where Lower Decks is all about the alienation of the command from the uh, rank and file. Whereas this is like, no, 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 like actually given the circumstances, the commander needs to be very competent and in this case actually is competent yeah and and also it more validates my headcanon that admiral vance or some admiral before him essentially did a soft coup against the civilian government of the federation and it's (laughs) like the federation is actually like a, a an enlightened military dictatorship I mean, I think that might be there. Uh, it, 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 it'll, be, it'll remain to be seen, but I feel like Disco does need to deal with that and make that explicit in season four because the civilian government and the Starfleet High Command exist in the same facility now. And so if we don't ever see the civilian government, people are going to continue to assume that there really isn't one, right? And so... Uh... It's like the crown authority in Canadian politics. Like, yeah, technically they have all the power, but they just do whatever the prime minister says. So I guess we should talk about uh, Burnham's captaincy then. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's the last point, right? I I think we end with Burnham's captaincy because for the first time in Star Trek... Like mainline show, not a cartoon. We have a black woman captain, um, and Cisco. Like it takes her three seasons to get there, but she's there. She sits in the seat and says, "Let's fly," and it's beautiful. Yeah. What I like about Burnham's character and Cisco's character is that they both strike me as like very loyal to Starfleet and the Federation, but also both very unapologetically black. I remember seeing people talking about how much Burnham's hair meant to them because, you know, and still in the year of our Lord, current year, Black people get in trouble for having hairstyles that fit with how their hair is. And their hair is considered unprofessional because it's not white people hair, basically. And so changing her hairstyle to that early in the season was really important to people. But then now she's the captain. And I think, I don't know, I just really, I really like that about her. Just like I liked how Cisco was betrayed for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Burnham being captain and given something of an informal pride of place with the Admiral as like the Starfleet's new system for is is kind of interesting. I'm wondering if they're going to do anything with that in the next seasons. I'm sure that relationship will be developed more. I think the Burnham captaincy thing is really the main thrust of this season and you can see everything being written around that and michelle paradise basically said that 
that it was going to be a show where the main character was not a captain. And they realized, no, we should probably make our protagonist the captain at some point. (laughs) And this season was written around the idea of Burnham becoming the captain, which is why the part one and part two are the bookends to this season, right? Actually, thank you, because I was wondering to myself, like, why did they make a part one and a part two that's not, like, contiguous like that? What the fuck? It's like the the, the doubt the doubt is introduced into Burnham's mind in part one, mm-hmm. and then she overcomes it in part two and, you know, embraces oh. Starfleet. Yeah, that's good, because mid-season, I'm thinking Burnham's going to go full autonomous, quit the party, and, you know, start blowing up prime ministers or whatever they did in the, you know, the Red Summer in Italy in the 80s or whatever. She was going to join Book on Dr. Doolittle ALF Adventures. Burnham wasn't going to be in the chain of command anymore, but now she's fucking captain. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes material that talks about the emotional significance for everyone involved with getting Captain Burnham in the chair. And what that was going to mean. You know, Star Trek often gets up its own ass about how woke it is. And, you know, how, how big and important it is for them to do these things. But I think it's kind of true in this case. That, like, making the, you know, mainline Star Trek show have a black woman captain is as significant as they make it out to be. Like, it's exactly as significant as they make it out to be. And behind the scenes, they're all, like, like sweating bullets and kind of irritable about the big task that they had ahead of them. And they did a great job. Out of all of the season finales that we've gotten from the live action Star Treks, the new ones, uh, Disco's one, two, three, and Picard one, it still suffers from the, hey, let's jam all of our ideas in here. And now we have to pay everything off. But they executed this one the best. And the payoff is beautiful. Yeah. Let's fly. Yeah, let's fly. <laughs> I, I enjoyed the finale to the degree that like, yeah, that Burnham pl- arc came together. And the Burnham arc, like, what it felt like, oh, yeah, this was, they put a bow on it. It was ni- nicely tied up. But it felt like everything else on the show suffered in service of that plot line. That kind of left me with a sour taste in my mouth. But it was, it, it was just mixed feelings. Like, I saw some very negative reviews of the final episode out there. And I wasn't really there with them. Like, I think it's better than that. But I, I wasn't, uh, uh, you know, completely enthusiastic about it either because it felt like Tilly's arc, Saru's arc were very in service of the Burnham arc. The burn was in service of the Burnham arc. Uh, everything was in service of the Burnham arc. And it was like, okay, you know, fine. I hope they do better in the next season where they actually have their bridge crew sorted out. And they can just, like, kind of move on to things and, like, do more interesting stuff. But the satisfaction I felt out of the Burnham arc felt like it was bought at a cost. That's that's the only thing I'll say about it. I think I broadly agree. Like, the thing is, is that the show is set up so differently than the other Star Trek shows that it is... Star Trek Discovery is the Michael Burnham show. Yeah. More or less. Like, and none of the other Star Trek shows, even even kind of Star Trek Picard is is more ensemble cast. They did it way better this season than they did last season, but they still suffered from everything being instrumental for that end. And also they're just trying to do wrap up too many loose ends at the end of the season. The theme of the season is reconnection. Saru plays a really good diplomat on the show. Like he's very good at that. His character fits the role really well. These this last three episode arc finale like i said at the beginning is is really the same story told in parallel at the micro and the macro level which i think is what they were trying to do in season two and just didn't pull it off i think they actually pulled it off a lot better here because like the whole the whole thing with um with sukal and the burn is is i think a really good mirror for the way that the federation is being portrayed like it's it's this it's this isolated, like the Federation is this tiny isolated mm. community that's barely holding on in a world that's falling apart due to an accident that it caused. And that's the story of Sukal as well. Saru's entire mission there is to like bring Sukal out back into the world and like reconnect him to other sentient beings and, and to like bring him back into the fold of humanity as broader than just the human species and 
like Burnham's whole whole point, like uh, uh, in this season, is to basically do the exact same thing with the Federation. Is is to drag the Federation out of this tiny little shell and to reconnect it, not just with the worlds that it lost in the burn, but to like the entire rest of the world. Like they they say, like Federation and non Federation planets. They don't specify, you know, previously aligned planets they're saying non-federation they're they're expanding the federation past its initial boundaries now that they have this massive dilithium supply again and that's why i'm saying i I think that discovery really wants to tell bigger sociological stories through the lens of very very small character stories and Mm -hmm. i think that i think that they did it pretty well in this season and and that's why i think that if we're making predictions, I think what they want to do with Saru is to have him continue that sort of like uh, diplomatic kind of um, like soft power projection kind of thing of of like working with other people to help them help bring them into a much larger, better, connect, more connected fold. And Burnham's whole thing is to like go out there and like dramatically push people out of their comfort zone and really like, like drag the Federation kind of kicking and screaming back into the galaxy. I really hope the fourth season is all about just love it when a, when a plan comes together, you know, spring, you know, delivering the, the lithium and bringing people back in the Federation, checking up on the world, checking up on the, the quadrant, the, the galaxy, whatever. Dealing with the remains of the chain. I think you're right that it, it's not dead, like that it's it's more decentralized than the Federation ever was. And so I think it'll remain a threat. Probably that's the big bad we're dealing with besides just, you know, entropy and random tragedy. <laughs> Taking out the NASDAQ would not be the end of capitalism. Right. Yeah. There's always New York Stock Exchange. Well, the way I, I interpret it, right, like, you know, Osira is, is a minister. So I just imagine that she was the leader of the Emerald Chain. She was the leader of the Orion and Dorian Syndicate in particular, right? So the way I thought of it was that she was just kind of like the, the leader of this, the, that like kind of section of the Emerald Chain, the section that is the closest to the Federation, now that she's gone, the uh, the Emerald Chain in that area is kind of not as much of a presence. But obviously, when Disco, you know, jumps to a further location, there might be weekend, but still present uh, Emerald Chain people. Yeah, either remnants or like just another branch, just another this- branch, another syndicate, maybe. But I think Discovery is also the the show has set her up as like not just. A representative of part of the of one of the syndicates, but like the prime power broker within the chain writ large. Yeah, yeah. no, that, that's there. It, it's not clear what exactly her role is in the in the government, but she's clearly has a lot of power, whatever it is. What if she really was the lead reformer that had the most political capital in the chain? And now that they killed her, they emboldened the more like greater of two evils party, like in the chain. And like the pro-slavery party now basically can steamroll the opposition. <laughs> it's probably probably what would happen. Uh, in yeah, real life. yeah. They, they killed the Whig prime minister, and now the Tories are in charge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, she had it coming. You know, you can't just try right. to drown someone in programmable matter. Well, and even as like a reformer, she is like quite nasty. Yeah, and- she's awful. And yeah, she's, you know. she's bad news. Like she's <laughs> like that kind of reform is no. It has it coming. Yeah, yeah, it's smart imperialism rather than brute force imperialism. Yeah. Well, um, and also she's also empire. going to do brute force imperialism. She's a liberal. I mean, what are you yeah. going to say? Well, she's actually existing liberalism, where like all the rights and protections have no power, and you still and you end up with all the illiberal shit. There, there's no way of like making that stuff actually function because what Admiral Vance is bringing to her is like what we would think of as, you know, democratic checks or, you know, liberal values or, or, or quote in quotes, right? Like, uh, you know, good governance, you know, what you might call liberal governance, but Osira actually represents what the history of liberalism actually culminates in. Well, perhaps we should wrap it up. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. let's wrap up the wrap up. Thank you so much for tuning in and downloading and Tiberius, Kyle, and of course, Chief O'Brien. Um, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Live long and prosper. Thank you for listening to Jumpsuit Utopia. Jumpsuit Utopia is edited by Conrad Zimmerman. Buy his pins and audiobooks at pinfultruth.com. This podcast is part of the Emancipation Network. Check out our sister projects from Alpha to Omega, General Intellect Unit, Mortal Science, Swampside Chats, and Varn Vlog. Until next time, set phasers to stand.